This podcast is rated S for science and also for spoilers and swearing. There's, there's going to be swearing. Something is killing these people and sucking them dry. Run! It's a stampede! There was a time when sea beasts would ravage our shores and no ship was safe on the sea. But those days are over. Welcome everybody to Cinematica Animalia, your weekly foray into the biology of movie monsters. This week, we're going to be taking a look at 2022's The Sea Beast. I'm your host, uh, Adam Hasek, a disease ecologist at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, joined, as always, by the Baroness, her ladyship Libby Young, writer and story specialist at Short Story Soup. And, as always, we have Dave. Do we have an idea of where Sam may be up, up to, or where he may be up to, what he might be up to this week? I have my uh, my world map here in the uh, the Cinematica o- uh, office. I've been throwing, throwing pins at it, just hoping to land on where he's at. And so far... That enormous Aussie has somehow evaded my notice. Well, I think he's like um, Odysseus, right? Like he was swimming home and then he had to talk to each one of the heads of Scylla. And then Charybdis got him really going in the whirlpool. Yeah. Then he got stuck on an island and all of his men got turned to pigs. And that was a whole thing. I think you're thinking of Willow, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was last week. Bavmorda. So my understanding (laughs) is similar to the plot of this film. Sam has found himself trapped, actually. His boat got off course, and he ended up back in Canada, which is great. Unfortunately, I haven't seen much of him because I just found out about this. One of the reasons that Sam actually left was that his studies of the moose led to a terrible rivalry that developed. And at this point, Sam has had to engage in full-on, almost sea beast-style conflict with the moose to try and protect his family long enough to get back to the raft to hopefully start swimming in the right direction this time. Moose are dangerous. Don't fuck mm, with them. Nope. Yeah. yeah. Something about Sam marrying their queen but not fulfilling his obligations. I haven't looked into the details all that much. <laughs> are you sure this isn't just LARPing? <laughs> I didn't even know that Moose had queens. This is a fascinating development into Moose. Yeah, biology. their royal structure is awesome. And we'll never be This week, we'll be taking a look at the biology of cetaceans, whaling, as far as an industry goes, and the history of sea monsters, part two. As always, there are time codes below if you want to jump ahead to specific sections. It's a whale of a tail. Dave, you got some news for us? For news this week, uh, there were two big points that I wanted to talk about. So first, just sort of a a general cool. Uh, The beautiful blue parrot has returned to the wild two years after being declared extinct. Uh, so yeah, they've released eight of the Spix's macaws in Brazil, and they are planning on releasing a further 12, basically to try and help the population. Uh, and they're being released into a protected reserve in Brazil. Uh, so far, they're doing wonderful, says the biologists and researchers that are basically keeping up with this with 100% survival so far. Uh, the goal is obviously to try and help rebuild and build up their numbers. But I don't know. It's, uh, it's cool to see populations of certain things that we thought extinct being able secondary to conservation efforts to bring them back and hopefully start to increase their numbers again. Um, and Brazil loves these parrots from what I can understand. Yeah, so uh, the species was immortalized in the 2011 animated film Rio. Cool. 
In terms of the other thing that I wanted to talk about, that was just a really, well, two last sort of quick points. So one, um, there's a new study out of Stanford that was basically looking at the transition over to renewable energies and using existing renewable energy. So technology that exists today, switching the planet over completely to renewable energies would cost about $62 trillion. Now that's a lot. Yikes. But the savings that would be brought on with the transition would equal out to about $11 trillion a year. So it wouldn't take us very long to basically, if we made this transition, and this is the point the study is trying to make, to allow us to basically within six years overcome the transition costs. So pay, pays for itself in six years. And that's hard. There's not a lot of things. University students don't pay for themselves in six years. So, I mean, they do not, unfortunately, finding an investment that gives back like that. That's pretty cool. And there are a lot of countries. I'm I'm very interested in what the U.S. has been saying right now about trying to cut their energy dependence on other countries like Russia by trying to focus more of their efforts into renewable energies going forward. Um, and then in that vein, uh, there has been more invested in nuclear fusion technology in the last 12 months than has occurred in the last 10 years globally. Uh, the idea behind nuclear power being a much cleaner solution than what we've seen in the past has led to an investment of $2.5 billion um, over the past year, which is really wow. cool. That is incredible. I think that's one thing that I've always said. I, I know that the globe is in dire straits, if you will, and um, we've talked about it before. The on walk this. of life. Yes, if you will. <laughs> we've talked about it on this pod before. But I mean, the power of human innovation is astounding. Um, I think, as Dave said it once, it is too late for some things, but it's not too late altogether. Nope. <laughs> um, and I believe that with our technology and, and if we put our minds to it, I mean, there's some really cool possibilities out there. Necessity is the mother of invention. We'll have to upset the status quo. And we've discussed that before, that that's going to be the hardest thing when it comes to rooting out oil corporations for big transitions over to clean energy. But it definitely mm -hmm. can be done. And in many places, it is being done. Yeah, I think I think this is where, you know, we've talked on like our Okja episode of um, the power of, of consumerism. Um, you know, big corporations are greedy. And yes, they're powerful, but they listen to where the money is. And so if you start putting your money in... If you're able to put your money in things that matter, then they'll follow suit because they just follow it like a little stinky cheese trail that a cartoon mouse would follow. <laughs> exactly. But if we're going to solve the climate crisis, we've got to change more than the light bulbs and the windows. We've got to change the laws and the policies through collective political action on a large scale. Mr. Vice President, the snack table isn't going to clean itself. So this week, we are covering How to Train Your Dragon for The Way of Water. It is a commentary on the dangers of fame. A little girl gets swept up in the idealization and romanticization of life as a famous sea beast hunter. So much so that she steals away on a ship heading out to find and kill the most dangerous sea beast of them all, the Red Bluster. After nearly dying multiple times, she and coerced babysitter Jacob Holland, famous hunter, discover that the Red Bluster is just that. Bluster. Uh. It's a sentient, peaceful-by-nature beast that apparently has had a long-time dream of one day owning a human child as a pet. 
Unfortunately, the government lies to its citizens about the, quote, threat of sea beasts in order to make money. This was really by far the most far-fetched part of the movie. That would never happen in real no, life. No, um, no. So the <laughs> so Jacob, his adoptee-to-be, and the giant ocean lizard decide to form a coup, overthrow the greedy monarchs, and set history right, letting everyone know that sea beasts are harmless, especially the giant crabs. That was great. Um, so what do I like about this movie? Dave, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this. I mean, I will always take more of how to train your dragon energy. Um, I really enjoyed the voice cast. I thought they all did a fantastic job. And um, I really enjoyed the crewman. I can say that I got quite a laugh out of the the crewman and kind of the generalized dark story behind this film. Um, I did not think I was going to get as upset about certain parts of this as I did, uh, particularly the death of the first monster, the Brickleback. Um, I had to pause that and do like a little bit of a walk around the house before I could sit back down and get back to this movie. I'll agree with that. That for sure kind of took me off guard, even though I figured this is something that would happen. It's a monster about monster hunters going after sea beasts. Of course, one of them is going to die, but it doesn't make it any easier to watch. This this movie was a delight. The animation was really fun. The voice cast was fantastic. I really enjoy this world. The The whole aesthetic of this sea-based culture and society is really interesting to me. The, the castle that the royals yeah. live in was gorgeous. I really like the color scheme. And blue was the absolute best sidekick you could ever have in any movie ever. And I will fight you on this. <laughs> I actually did think of you during that scene where there's the... Blue has eaten so many fish that it's unable to get up. And I was like, it looks like Adam. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I heard a saying once, you are what you eat. And Adam, you're a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I concur. Um, the notes I made were cute and uncomplicated, uh, like a cup of hot, hot cocoa in the fall. Uh, animators, please note, as an audience Oof. member, I will never, ever get tired of the adorable bug-eyed Dumb as Rock's crater. Uh, you're my boy, Blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Dave, besides the Bricklebacks' unfortunate murder, uh, what did you not like about this movie? I mean, there were story points that didn't move together as well as I would have enjoyed. Um the changeover that takes place at the end of the film, not just with all the crew members that decide to free the monster, but also with the general disobeying the royal family and with all of the people kind of shouting and yelling to kind of free the creature, despite this giant thing that's smashed through a big chunk of the surrounding structure. It is terrifying. I kept trying to imagine myself as a person sitting down there watching this giant beast. I like to think of myself as a good human, but I don't think I'd be cheering like, yeah, free it. It's fine. It's probably <laughs> going to be okay. Um, and then also just from a technical standpoint, voices don't carry all that well. That if you're standing up, if you're a little girl standing on top of a creature trying to tell people about what's going on out there, maybe the acoustics in the center of that water is kind of designed like the Colosseum where people can kind of hear everything if you're standing on a monster's head in the middle of it. Um, but generally speaking, I imagine most people hearing like, and someone being like, what? What did she say? I'm like, shut up. I'm trying to listen. What, what the fuck did she say? <laughs> I kept waiting for that as well. 
Yeah, she's not a very large person, and it also has a higher-pitched voice, which makes it harder to hear. So none of them are hearing any of that, including the royals that she's yelling yes. at. So unfortunate for her. I think I will agree with the story issue that it's it has a really strong start and a decent middle and just kind of fell apart for me at the end. This whole extra, 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 extra added bit of... The our heroine kind of figuring out that the quote royals are behind this for some reason yeah. that doesn't really make sense. We're gonna pay these people to go kill monsters, but that's gonna make us rich somehow. It doesn't really work out. I think they were opening the trade routes, is what they were getting at. They said every of the monsters they kill, it increases the comfort that merchants travel through the waters. So they've used it similar to how the royal. I mean, again, not explained, but assuming based on the details. Like the spice trade or other yeah, trading not, arrangements. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Pity they didn't explain it in the movie. I, I agree there has to be some kind of justification for why it's wrong to kill these monsters. Because uh, they're not really monsters. But it just was not done well for me. So I wish I'd just been more focused on it being about uh, Jacob fighting his mentor slash father figure. And have that be just kind of the climax. So that's really all you needed. Yeah. Yeah, I have similar but also differing uh, notes. I, I, I did say that sometimes the plot was a little too forced. I took issue with the, the captain, the mentor. Um, he's like super great guy one minute. And yeah. then he's like inexplicably about to shoot and murder a child in cold blood. Um, so Murderous <laughs> rampage. That was definitely a little awkward. Um in addition, and this is definitely a weird nitpicky visual thing, I really disliked the look of Red. She did not look scary in the yeah. slightest to me, and I do understand that it is a kids movie, so you can't make her look too terrifying, but I don't feel I don't feel like they found the right balance. Um I really disliked her skin texture. Uh, was like the biggest thing for me, aka the lack thereof. Yeah. Um they chose to give her like a seal like dolphin type skin. Um, and in some scenes, it just made her look very cartoony and fake, like almost a different animation style. Um, and it really took me out of it because I was like, wow, that looks really weird. I'd agree with that. She was not scary at all, even when she's trying to be intimidating. Her, te- her teeth are like rounded. <laughs> yeah, they are. I, I have some thoughts on her teeth, but I feel like it's it could still work. It could have been so much better because the sense of scale in this movie is really well done, I think. She is enormous, Agreed. and you really feel it at times. Mm-hmm. Just a shame that it wasn't more. It stands in comparison to the brickleback is really cool. The big jaws and all the tentacles oh, yeah. coming up from he the plating awesome. associated with the abdomen. Or she. Mm-hmm. Or she. The crab is great. He is bulletproof, fireproof, and can think faster than supercomputer. His only instinct to destroy everything he touches. So it is a monster. Just a little one. So I have a few pieces of trivia about this movie. Um, There wasn't too much uh, because it has just been released. But one thing I did find interesting that it was originally titled back when they were pitching the idea of this movie. It was originally titled Jacob and the Sea Beast. So I'm wondering and they didn't. Interesting. Yeah, they didn't explicitly say, but I'm wondering if it definitely took a story shift with the addition of a little girl. And if there wasn't more of a focus on Jacob. Um, and maybe his mentor. Hmm. If there was a shift, I think, even though I wish there was more of that mentor-Jacob relationship going on, I think that was a shift for the yeah. better. I really think the inclusion of um, of this younger character was a, was a boon for this movie. Oh, and she's badass. Yeah, she's cute. 
I liked her a lot. She's Cutting through the rope right away or even running directly at the captain with the knife when she's got a transfusion <laughs> line in. That, yeah. that is a human I want to follow into battle. Mm-hmm. Her and Sarah Sharp. That woman is a badass. <laughs> How She climbed down a fucking rope set with a peg leg. Yes, yeah, she did. How do you do that? <laughs> so the other bit of trivia I have is Chris Williams is the director. And he is known for movies like Big Hero 6, Moana, and co-directing Bolt. But I found through a little digging aka imdb uh he has been a story artist for a hot minute and he's worked on films such as mulan lilo and stitch and bruce new groove and both frozen movies and even more yeah he's been around around the cartoon mostly good movies yeah it's nice to see that the now that i know he was also involved with moana i wonder if the giant purple crab is a hopeful i think reference to tomatoa maybe that maybe that that was tomatoa Mm-hmm. And that's how he meets his definite end. <laughs> and he's skinny before he eats more people. Or maybe that was this, his origin story. He gets attacked. Ah. He gets a spear underneath it. And he goes, fuck you. At least I'm going to be rich <laughs> if I'm injured. <laughs> you know, next time I'll be wearing a shell on my back. How about that? Made of gold. I'm too shiny. Watch me dazzle like a diamond in the rough. Strut my stuff. My stuff is so shiny. Before we get into the science, if you want to find Sam and I on Twitter, Sam is at Big Dr. Fishboy. Remember, boy is B-O-I because he's a cool kid. I'm at Hasek Adam. If you want to find some more of the writing, that the non-podcast associated writing that Lippy does, you can check out a 20,000 leagues worth of uh, content at shortstorysoups.substack.com. And if you want to see some more of the hardcore ecology that Sam, myself, and an enormous team of international authors write about, you can check out ecologyforthemasses.com. For the science of this movie, I am happy to report that beyond her size, I don't think that there is too much wrong with blue as red. Blue. There's absolutely nothing wrong with blue. Blue is perfect. Um, as far as red goes, I think there's not really going to be too much wrong with her evolutionarily, ecologically, no. and as a creature. Um, blue shares... God damn it. Blue is always on my mind because blue is the best. This is blue a real best, red versus blue situation. It is. <laughs> I think it's a puma, actually. Um, yeah, Red shares her body plan with uh, cetaceans, which are dol- the group that includes dolphins and whales. And I think that Red is actually just a cetacean. She is a gigantic whale that has come from some similar offshoot as the orca or the killer whale. Her funny kind of stubby teeth are almost the exact same size and shape relative to her own body as you would find in an orca. With that big mouth of kind of dopey looking teeth. And her body plan is just that of a large swimming mammal. Her tail moves up and down, her, uh, going across the horizontal plane. It does not move side to side like a fish would, which was one issue I had with the brickleback at the beginning, minus the tentacles coming out of its body, because it was very much a fish, but its tail was going up and down, so that doesn't quite work. Um, but red we have is this gigantic cetacean. Which works because the largest animal to ever exist on our planet, according at least that we have fossilized before, is the blue whale, which is surprisingly not that much smaller than red is. Um, I think the largest blue whales come in around 100 feet in length, just around 30, 35 meters. And I want to say that red is probably 150, if that. So make 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 a blue whale a little bit bigger, and you 
combine that with the teeth of an orca, and you got it. She's right there. The one difficulty we have with this are two big things that she does that whales don't typically do. Uh, she is seen at multiple times getting up on land and being just fine with that. Normally, if a whale gets stuck in the shallows, their own weight will crush them to death, which is pretty shitty and awful. But she moves around, quote, just fine, much like a seal would. And she also has a nostril structure like a seal does. Mm-hmm. Her nostrils are located at the front of her face instead of on the top of her head, which is where you normally see them with a cetacean, which is because as they evolved from their wolf-like ancestor back in the day, their nostrils moved further and further and further and further up their head, going in between their eyes. I don't know if that was actually ever between their eyes, which is a really fun image, but moving from the front of their muzzle type structure up to the top of their skull to be more streamlined and efficient. Because it was more efficient, it was selected for. Because it was selected for inheritable, you then have whales with a blowhole at the top of their head instead of a wolf-like organism with a nostril at the front. You're describing witchcraft. Now, the magic of evolution. Join me, children, for a journey. A journey through time and space. Now, we see a pretty poignant scene of our heroes looking out through Red's nostrils Mm -hmm. in a very beautiful aquarium-like setting of this weird clear membrane that she has. While there are plenty of organisms that have these kind of membranes across their nostrils and even eyeballs to help with um, keeping out pesky outside structures and surfaces, I don't think this is really going to work out super well for her in the sense that it makes no sense to have a clear uh, membrane. It would just make a lot more sense for her there just to be musculature around the nose that could just shut them individually, which is exactly what a seal does. And speaking of seals... They are known for being able to get up onto the shore and hunt down things that they need to, even though they're going to be much better off in the water. So somehow, way back when, in Red's evolutionary history, a whale and a seal, they got together, Mm -hmm. and that's how you have her. Just just kidding. That's not how evolution works. And they did what? (laughs) They held flippers until their flippers detached and made a new Red, just like the rock people. They were married first, right? Of course. But speaking of killer whales, not only does she have the teeth of them, but this moving up on shore is something that some killer whales do do. Some orcas, rather. (laughs) If you've ever seen the really, really cool images of, well, cool for us, very unfortunate for the seal, of a seal just sitting right there at the waterline and just this enormous orca come tearing through the water as they use the momentum of both the waves and their own swimming to beach themselves enough to grab these seals who thought they were safe and drag them back into the water. My understanding, um, that is how some of them accidentally beach themselves permanently. Yep. Yeah, I'm not sure of the numbers, but it's definitely a thing that would happen. This is also the same strategy that's employed by Adam to try and get to the tofu in the back of the fridge if he really wants those extra bricks. Libby has seen him repeatedly backing himself up away from the overfilled fridge and throwing himself at it as hard as he can just to try and squeeze his head in to get what he wants from the back. I've had to pull him out like three or four times. He's gotten stuck. Listen, tofu is life and I want to eat it. If it's back there, I'm going to get it. It's as simple as that. And most of the time it works out just fine. It's those sometimes where it doesn't I need help. But so while I don't think Red is necessarily going to be able to get all the way up on an island and kind of walk around and do her merry little thing and crawl over an entire archipelago and go sliding down and destroy a, a gigantic warship, which is really cool, by the way. That was such a good scene. <laughs> yeah. I think she would be able to if she was a bit smaller, probably. 
beat herself enough to grab some kind of prey item and drag it back into the water if she was able to time it well enough and not beat her massive, heavy body on the shore and kill herself. Now, the other hunting strategy that we see her employ that makes me think that she's definitely a cetacean is her method of making a little whirlpool. Now, she does this to help Jacob and Maisie. So we see Red kind of swim in a circle and create a mini whirlpool and kind of trap a bunch of little fish within the confines of this and make it easier for Maisie and Jacob to collect their fish for dinner. So I don't know of any cetaceans that are large enough to do something like this, but humpback whales are known to do a similar strategy with bubble nets. So multiple humpbacks will swim around in a circle underneath a school of fish, blowing a huge column of bubbles in a column, basically. And these bubbles are confusing and large enough to trap a bunch of smaller fish into a tighter and tighter and tighter ball that makes it really easy for then one humpback to come swimming up through the bottom of that with its mouth open, get all these fish in one bite, and then enjoy their dinner. So I think that if Red is able to work with either other Red Blusters, or maybe if she's quick enough herself, she can make this little whirlpool, trap these fish in it, then swim right up and get all these fish in one bite. Interestingly enough, in, as I was researching uh, my section for this week, I didn't include this, but this brings a good opportunity to include it now. This is the hunting um, method that they thought Krakens used in uh, mythology. And so oh, they nice. often would talk about, yeah, they, they would talk about how sailors were afraid of it. But some sailors thought it was a good thing because if you got up close on the right side of the Kraken, as it was swirling up all these fish, they would just cast down their nets um, and have, you know, a huge bounty. Cool. Cool. So, so I'm kind of wondering if the, maybe the Sea Beast creators, the writer, uh, took from mythology in that. I mean, we expect it's maybe. yeah, and we expected something similar based on the fact that the seagulls follow the sea beast everywhere. So there's probably some method like what we see with Red doing that swirl to spin the fish into a circle that takes place on a regular basis that allows other species to swoop in and take advantage of this. Yeah, that is, uh, it's something that happens within marine ecosystems. It's called a bait ball. When you have all of these, quote, bait fish Ooh. caught in these really tight concentrations, it'll start small with the little, you know, birds getting them, some other sharks maybe, some bigger birds diving in to grab them, and then rounding it all off is a big whale coming from the bottom to swallow them all in one go. Cool. Whales that do that have what's called baleen. These, are, uh, these big hair-like structures at the roof of their mouth they can use to trap the food as they push the water out of their mouth. So reds teeth looking like an orca don't quite make sense for this feeding method but if she was able to trap a bigger organism like a smaller sea beast with this whirlpool and then chow down on them like an orca would i think it works just fine so while adam was talking i was really curious and i looked up the largest blue whale ever recorded do either of you has a have a guess to its size and weight 140 feet and 85 tons mm, i'm gonna say 86 tons and I'm going to say 150 feet. So it is 110 feet. Damn it. And 17 yes. inches. Um, and it was a female, of course. Uh, her weight is in pounds, so I'm not sure what the tonnage is, but it is 418,878 pounds. I'm going to do some math. That is 209 tons. Wow. And now what about a metric ton? What about an ass ton? <laughs> What's the rating for ass tonnage? It's 180, well, 190 uh, metric tons. As far as ass tons, I think that's one ass ton.
leading into kind of a discussion of other whale related features, one of the the arguably best scenes that takes place in the entire film is the capture of the boat basically within the mouth of the whale. Um, and then the that sort of scene where both Jacob and Maisie are looking around inside of the mouth to sort of, you know, she does make a good point where she says, are we going to die? And he goes, no, no. I mean, yes, 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 I we mean, are. probably. <laughs> um, now, in terms of surviving inside of a whale, and this does crisscross over quite well into Libby's territory. Do your odds increase if your name is Jonah? <laughs> Apparently, it also mm. increases if your name starts with a J. So have either of you guys heard of James Bartley? Yes. James Bartley is the central figure in a 19th century story in which he is swallowed whole by a sperm whale. He's found days later still living alive in the stomach of the whale that happens to be killed secondary to harpooning and leading to his rescue. Can you... I'm That's just wild. sorry. Can you imagine... <laughs> Being on that crew and cutting that whale's stomach open, and the guy's like, oh, it's hot in there. <laughs> so this story originated anonymously, but it began to appear in American newspapers. It eventually circulated and expanded outwards across the U.S., uh, and then eventually became fairly widespread, noting articles such as Man and Whale's Stomach, Rescue of Modern Jonah. Um, and spread all the way across the pond to this was reported throughout England at the time as well that this man had been rescued. Um, modern day researchers have all put together multiple inconsistencies associated with this story and associated with the reporting, none of which makes sense. Most whale biologists will agree it is 100% physically possible for a human to be swallowed whole. That's what whales do. Interesting. However, it has been noted repeatedly that a human would be crushed, drowned, or suffocated in the whale's stomach. Um, whales are, like many other species, they have a multiple chambered stomach. You, you, you'd get smushed. Like, they, they swallow things whole all the time. It's not surprising they swallow things whole. It's just they die so they can be consumed and eaten. Um, so this story has basically just been regarded as bunk. But I do find it interesting of early viral marketing campaigns where it was just like everybody got literally on this boat to be like, yeah, a whale swallows somebody. Oh, he totally comes back to life. Humans are awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Humans are really great at swallowing bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, what I wanted to talk about a little bit today, and my story is going to start off cool and interesting and then it's going to get really really dark and then hopefully i can round this out with cool and interesting again um but i guess darkness warning to a certain extent going into this we've talked before about a lot of different whale species i wanted to focus today on the humpback whale um these creatures uh bring in tons of tourism across areas of the u.s and canada every year uh, they're an animal that tends to be regularly featured in books, uh, small little plush toys, and they're regularly discussed with a certain level of affection. Um, on top of their ability for the bubble nets, which, as Adam was discussing, is just so cool. Um, the idea behind the bubble nets actually requires complex singing and vocalization. Uh, we know that these whales have to talk to each other because you're basically doing the idea that you're working together to gather this such that you can potentially all gain benefit through eating at the end of it. Uh, it's a mm -hmm. it's a coordinated effort, and it's really cool. 
So speaking of this uh, coordination with this, the whale song, from my understanding, the I think it's a sperm whale that has the, more, the most powerful song, or at least the call. And depending on the frequency of the call and how close a human is to the whale when it happens, it can literally kill you because it is so strong. Really? I don't know if that just comes from damage to your brain, if it comes from just shaking your heart so badly the rhythm stops, if, you're the, if your brain just short circuits, but it is apparently an incredible, incredibly powerful and dangerous thing. I feel like that's very heavy metal of the whales. <laughs> Agreed. We know these vocalizations can be interfered with in such a way that whales hate sonar. Uh, during COVID-19, we know that we actually saw increases in the happiness that was associated with whale song because there was a decrease in flights as well as um, ocean travel. And we saw a decrease that was associated and the whales basically were able to get rid of a huge amount of background noise, which is cool. Now, wow, humpback whales, and we'll get into this, were almost entirely wiped out by commercial whaling throughout the 19th and early 20th century. Very much the, the bison of the waters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they were one of the first species to be placed under the protection of the Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1970. Um, also, it says a lot that we didn't really have animals getting placed under a protection act until 1970. No shit. Now, in terms of hunting and the association with hunting, uh, humans have been hunting whales for way longer than I thought. Uh, we've got early uh, incidents of depictions of whaling associated with uh, various sites in Korea, um, as well as there's quite a bit of information going back with a number of tribes that existed in Alaska, basically discussing that this might have gone back as early as 1000 BCE. I think that that is... While I am not a big proponent of hunting, I've done it. Um, I am uh, vegan now, if you will. <laughs> but I think that, that is something to kind of marvel at of these early humans looking at something that massive in an environment in which they are completely unsuited for with their tiny little boats and being like, yeah, we're going to kill that. It's <laughs> like that, oh, remarkable. Shit. Now, in terms of how they did this, and we're going to take a little bit of a journey through whale hunting technology, the first methods that were associated were known as or drive hunting. Um, this is the simple idea that basically a group of ships are positioned between the animal, the open sea, and basically you try and herd them towards the shore to try and beach them. And those are the, the earliest ones that we know were used, and actually in some tribes is still used for species like belugas, porpoises, narwhals to basically try and bring them in and beach okay. them. Um, the second early method that was used was something called a drogue. Now, do you guys know what a drogue is? I do not. Drogue? No. So I didn't know what this was either, but it's what's used in the film, The Sea Beast. So the idea was basically it was a semi-floating object, such as a wooden drum or an inflated seal skin, tied to an arrow or a harpoon. Once the missile's been shot into the whale's body... The buoyancy and drag from the drogue eventually cause the whale to tire itself out. And then once it's tired out, ships are able to approach and kill the animal. Um, so the Inuits, a lot of different North American tribes, there are a lot of groups that regularly practiced this. And there's actually some information to suggest that it was a technology that was kind of figured out across the world from various tribes that hunted whales. The idea that if you stick them with something that floats, you can tire them out eventually. We were talking earlier in the podcast about how 
human innovation knows no bounds. And there's one thing humans are really good at finding creative ways to do. It's kill things. Yeah, yeah, we are. And I mean, again, for early tribes, the idea of trying to hunt just a couple of these or trying to gain enough for food and basically bringing these big beasts in, this I'm not against. Yeah. I think that I want to clarify my comment and say that it's not necessarily wrong in this sense, especially this is a culture where this is a way of living for them. It's not something I can speak to, and it's not something I am by any means an expert in. Now, where things start to get bad is beginning in the late colonial period in the United States. Uh, Whaling became huge. Uh, The United States became the predominant whaling nation in the world, basically by 1830s. So American whaling origins starting in New York, New England, Cape Cod, and basically it was driven by the demand for whale oil, uh, which was chiefly used for lamps. So again, we're getting outside of the idea of we're using this for sustenance like food, and we are getting into the idea that we're using this to basically keep our streets lit. Uh, By the 18th century, this had become highly lucrative. Uh, So voyages were extending for years at a time as basically people would travel out. And this became a way that the British actually went after the Americans was during the revolution, going after whaling ships because they were a source of financial security, as well as the idea that they were using them for purposes like lighting their streets or their ships. Okay. Early whaling efforts concentrated on right whales and humpbacks because they were found near the American coast. The problem is that they just absolutely decimated these populations. Uh, They declined, but the market for whale products continued to grow. So that's where American whalers began extending, and this is where we ended up with ships that would go out for years at a time to start going after sperm whales. Uh, sperm whales were particularly prized for a dense waxy or waxy substance, something called cermatocy, that burns with an exceedingly bright flame. Uh, so it's located in an organ that's just sort of forward above the uh, the skull. If only we could burn wood or something to get this flame. But no, let's kill these massive mammals to get a little bit of oil out of Right. Now, demand also rose for oil that was associated in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution. And this was to lubricate the machines that were used at the time. So again, okay. it grows and changes as we start to shift. Um, British competition in import uh, duties basically drove New England whaling ships out of the North Atlantic. Um, but this ended up pushing it into a global economic enterprise. So whaling started basically growing everywhere as the idea of technology and lamps spread. And like any modern technology, if you see somebody else having it, I want it, I want it, I want it. Now, where things start to get really bad is in the nine or in the 1850s, there became sort of a serious attempt at trying to hunt these whales en masse. And so as a result, we started moving away from traditional harpooning techniques and drogue fishing and other things like that. And there was a desire to try and get really good at killing these. So in the 1860s, Captain Thomas Welcome Rose invented a rocket harpoon, um, making a significant contribution to the development of whaling, uh, further built upon in 1877 by a pyrotechnist, which was not a job that I knew existed, uh, by the name of John sounds dangerous. John Nelson Fletcher. He was a former Confederate soldier, and he created the California Whaling Rocket. Uh, these things were highly effective at killing whales. You were able to launch these harpoons in in large quantities. We didn't have to worry about drogue or anything else. You could literally just harpoon the animal to death. 
Uh, numbers Jesus. dropped drastically. And basically, the species was on the verge of extinction. However, and this is hopefully where I'm going to start to turn things around a little bit, massive conservation ele or elements were put in place because people really like whales. We really like humpback whales. And as a result, numbers rebounded. And so the current global population came down as low as potentially 10,000. And it's actually been estimated it might have been even lower than that. And it's come back to 80,000 as of 2022. That's, that's amazing. That's awesome. That's fucking kick ass. Now, in terms of the numbers are still threatened and there are still concerns associated with things like global warming as well as food stability, but their numbers have continued to tick upwards with huge efforts placed towards conservation. And it does say something that generally speaking, the global or not global, but at least the North American mindset towards these species have drastically changed. And in terms of recent changes, as of June 2022, the Biden administration announced it would be protecting 116,000 square nautical miles of Pacific Ocean and basically locking it down as a critical area for endangered humpbacks. And actually, there's a big discussion around that there may be lawsuits or other changes that can be used now that this area is protected for ship strikes and oil spills to try and better allow environmentalists to get a foothold to push to better protect these species as well as other species that are present in that area. Which would be great. I feel like it's it's one of those things I've always been aware of as far as how magical and amazing whales are as creatures. But it wasn't until I read uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, you know, a book about space, where he was talking about culture and the idea of species being intelligent. And he has a really poignant session on whales and how wild it is that we share a planet with in, with a number of other intelligent species, but one of the ones that is the most, I would say, misunderstood by us are the whales, these large cetaceans that are very intelligent and they have culture and they have language and they have whole society structures that we don't really understand and we literally hunt them to death. So it's nice that attitudes are kind of coming around on these. And changing how our industry works. So in the Atlantic regions, the numbers declined to approximately 450 whales, and they're back up, according to studies in 2019, to 25,000. And a big chunk of that is simply that they've changed. You don't make money off hunting these anymore. Instead, you make money off bringing people out in ships to look at them. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. If that's how you do things, cool. I'm not the biggest fan of capitalism, but... Like we said earlier, you vote with your wallet. <laughs> yep. Um, and in Canada, which I was finding really, really cool, there's been a bunch of work that basically one of the biggest problems they're running into are entanglements, whales getting stuck in nets that they're not intended for. Uh, Canada has the Whaling Commission's Global Whale Entanglement Response Network, and it has a phone number associated that if you are out, you can call people that come out that are specialized in disconnecting whales from entangled situations. That's fucking That's incredible. badass. It's a pretty neat job title. <laughs> yeah. I'm a whale disentangler. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm not a whale wrangler. I'm a whale unwrangler. <laughs> so I guess I mainly just wanted to use that physiology section to kind of circle back to it can seem shitty and crappy that, you know, a lot of what we do doesn't seem to have big effects. And it can really, in the modern day, feel like everything is getting worse and terrible and awful. 
but we've faced really big problems before from the ozone layer depletion to the destruction of certain species. When we work together, when we really give a shit, when we vote people into the proper positions or push for regulations, um, it works. And animals that are on the endangered species list, I hadn't realized I was reading yesterday, they are two times likely or two times more likely to recover than animals that are not. That list works and protecting animals works. It's a really great uplifting segment. Thank you. We're the planeteers. You can be one too. Because saving our planet is the thing to do. Looting and polluting is not the way. Hear what Captain Planet has to say. The power is yours. So I've talked before about the history of sea monsters in literature, and I did a pun intended, a bit of a deeper dive into it. And I found some hilarious things from the American Museum of Natural History. But before we wade into those waters, I wanted to read some excerpts from famous writers and naturalists to sort of set this underwater scene. So the first one is, as Adam mentioned earlier, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, from 1870. It was a giant squid, 25 feet long. It was heading towards the Nautilus, swimming backwards very fast. We could clearly make out the 250 suckers lining the inside of its tentacles, some of which fastened onto the glass panel of the lounge. The monster's mouth, a horny beak, like, like that of a parakeet, opened and closed vertically. What a whim of nature. A bird's, beast, a bird's beak in a mollusk. <laughs> In 1873, fishermen presented a squid arm, supposedly hacked off the animal when it attacked the men's boat, to a prominent Canadian naturalist named Reverend Moses Harvey. And Harvey wrote about the 5.8 meter or 19 foot long arm. Quote, I was now the possessor of one of the rarest curiosities in the whole animal kingdom, the veritable tentacle of the hitherto mythical devilfish, about whose existence naturalists had been disputing for centuries. I knew that I held in my hand the key of a great mystery and that of a new chapter that would now be added to the natural history. I love it. It was called the devilfish. <laughs> the hmm. mythical devilfish. So I'm going to read one more, um, and it's from, I do not know how to pronounce his last name. If Sam were here, he could tell me because he's Norwegian, but it's Hans Egede, Eged, Egede, <laughs> E-G-E-D-E, who was later the Bishop of Greenland. On the 6th of July, 1734, when off the south coast of Greenland, a sea monster appeared to us whose head, when raised, was on the same level of, sorry, was on the level with our main top. Its snout was long Whoa. and sharp, and it blew water almost like a whale. It had large, broad paws. Its body was covered with scales. Its skin was rough and uneven. In other respects, it was a serpent. And when it dived, its tail, which was raised into the air, appeared to be the whole ship's length from its body. How did he see the paws? It's <laughs> a good question. So the, Why is it half paws? These bird-beaked, broad-pawed, scaly devilfish seemed pretty far-fetched to us now with our deep-sea cameras and high-definition pictures and newfangled technologies. Uh, but believe it or not, I wanted to read these because these are the less ridiculous accounts. So let's travel backwards a few more hundred years to the age of exploration. 
Mm. Now, the the period from 1400s to the 1600s in Europe is sometimes called the Age of Exploration. Adventurers set sail from Western Europe seeking wealth, power, and knowledge. Uh, before then, Europeans who wrote and illustrated natural history books based them mostly on older books, often deferring to Greek masters such as Aristotle. But with as a new view of knowledge arose in Europe, emphasizing firsthand observation, data tra- from traveling naturalists became increasingly important. So in this transitional era, an author might present a newly discovered animal on the same page as a mythical creature. When European explorers like Christopher Columbus set out on their voyages of discovery in the 14 and 1500s, they were literally sailing into uncharted waters. Sea monsters were a concern for them, and frightening rumors ran rampant. Sailors' tales were sometimes the only firsthand information available about ocean animals, and these stories ranged from accurate observations to honest mistakes to outright tall tales, with no way for even the most objective naturalists to separate fact from fiction. I think it's okay, though, because we know that the fisher fisher people are the most reliable of storytellers and Absolutely. narrators, right? Yes. Yeah, if, if you're out in the dark with heavy water and waves all around you, you tend to get really good looks at things. Yeah, and most most often you were uh, underfed and malnourished and could have scurvy and definitely weren't hallucinating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who needs a lemon every once in a while? <laughs> so, Literally everyone who gets shipwrecked. <laughs> the meticulous drawing of sea monsters in European natural history from books from 1500s to 1600s revealed the overlap between science and legend at the time. Many sincere sea serpent sightings were later debunked as cases of mistaken identity. For instance, several, quote, sea monster carcasses turned out to be partially decayed basking sharks, um, which is an immense fish that grows up to be nine meters or 30 feet. Uh, Other examples of mistaken identity include a, quote, baby sea serpent that proved to be a deformed black snake and enormous serpents that turned out to be just a mass of floating seaweed. But... Mm. What were these other sightings, you ask? <laughs> well, I'm I really s- <laughs> I'm going to post some of these pictures to our Discord so Adam and Dave can see these because I laughed a lot. Um the pictures won't come sorry, let me take this out. The pictures aren't aren't right here, but they'll come a little bit later. So a picture from the fifteen thirty sorry. A picture from the 1563 book by Swiss naturalist Conrad Gesner shows a hippocampus, a sea creature with a horse's head. According according to a theory still popular at that time, every animal found on land had its counterpart in the ocean. Oh, God. So if there's a horse on the land... Because why wouldn't it? There's a horse at the sea. Oh, wait, there actually is. (laughs) Yeah, they're... they're, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Next, you're going to be telling me there's a catfish. <laughs> dogfish. Or a dogfish. <laughs> yeah. So, Conrad. Sea hippo. Ooh, might need your help with this one. It's German. Lycosenthes. <laughs> a German. That sounds Greek. It is. He's German. A German encyclopedia writer, who, by the way, you can find on ResearchGate. Uh, published a book in 1557 showing the dangerous monsters awaiting sailors on open seas, including an oversized lobster shown spearing a man with its antenna. <laughs> Several sea monsters. Because that's what lobsters do. Yeah, right. 
Several sea monsters cavort in the waters off Iceland in a 1585 map titled Islandia or Islandia, drawn by Andreas Villaeus. Shown in the lower left are Vache Marina, which is the Latin name for a sea cow. And it's not a manatee. It's an animal with a horse's head and a fish's tail, also known as a hippocampus. Insanity. Yep. So, among the most startling depictions of sea creatures in the 1500s are the sea monk or the sea bishop. Have either of you heard of these? No. I I have not, but I am horrified to hear what these actually are. I know what this one is. It's where a priest with a gambling problem gets cement shoes, right? You're not far off. Illustrated in a 1575 book by Swiss Swiss naturalist Conrad Gesner, supposedly captured in Denmark and Germany, these mysterious sea creatures have body parts that mimic the characteristics of robes and bishop's hats of Catholic clergymen. Um, And these are the actual pictures drawn in those naturalist book of what these creatures looked like what the fuck uh that's nothing uh, it's a fish person uh, okay why are they wearing a cow in my what the fuck no no no. (laughs) it's a sea monk and a sea bishop (laughs) right these are not the questions you should be asking the question we should be asking is why the sea monster has male pattern baldness Exactly. Why does that one have legs and a beer gut? <laughs> He's got a little calf fin I too. It. I like that. <laughs> Just on I the one leg. The- so in 1855, a Danish zoologist, many years later, which has a fun name, Jepetus Streamstrup, proposed that the fabled sea bishop was actually just a large squid. Shocking. And then offered a picture what? illustrating how the misunderstanding could have occurred. So unfortunately, ladies and gents, the sea, sea monk and sea, sea bishop do not exist. You know, and the world is better for it. But I encourage you to look up these drawings because they're fantastic. The others chose to remain behind on their porches with their rifles and one day evolve into mermaids. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wouldn't it take millions of years to evolve into mermaids? Normally, yes. But the caffeine really sped things up. So, wrapping up, and I'm sure, at least I hope I know the answer to this question, do we feel bad for Red and all the other monsters? You were, you were supposed to say, or do you feel bad for the monsters? And I was going to say no, because the monster of this movie is the, the, the king and queen and the captain. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely do not feel bad for them. But No, for, I don't feel bad for them at all. No. Uh, and for Red, I feel bad that Red is being hunted, but also Red fucks some shit up. Yeah. Wreck it red. So red red has been doing pretty well for a really long time. So I don't want them to hunt red, but I don't know if I necessarily feel bad for red because red seems to be kicking some ass. I feel bad for whatever those poor little uh, egg monsters were on the island because I don't know if they had enough incubation time. Stop being... stepping on them. He yeah. keeps stepping on them. Yep. It's not that hard. I felt very Just bad for take them. Take a second. Oh, Stop and I feel walking. Yeah. I feel very bad for the brickleback. Yes. That will. I felt very bad for the brickleback. Was just trying to do his thing, but not nah, getting murdered left, right, and center. Yeah. I feel. I do feel a bit bad for the captain. I feel like he went through some traumatic shit as a younger man, 
and it has just completely reshaped his view of the world, which is unfortunate. I feel like he could have used, you know, somebody to talk to, a professional, if you will. But the other humans seem to be, especially the royals, seem to be doing some heinous shit, and I'm not here for it. Blue continues to be the best. You're my boy, Blue. Would we recommend this movie? Yeah, for sure. It's cute. Yeah, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film, and uh, although there were parts of it that I felt hard, were hard to watch, I really liked it. I will say, in addition, um, I didn't. I meant to mention this earlier, but I didn't, so I'll throw it in now. It was really strange after watching the latest season of The Boys, hearing Carl Urban's voice and not hearing "cunt" come out every other <laughs> sentence. Boy. Yeah, that was a big change. Um, yeah, I think despite what I said in the our what we liked and didn't like about this movie, I would still recommend this movie. It's it's a good time, yeah. well worth a watch. So, bit of an of a bit of an announcement, listeners. Unfortunately, life has gotten to be very busy for all of us here at the pod, and we are unfortunately going to have to close down shop. We are going to be taking a couple weeks off to kind of collect and come together and work on. One last final movie, one last final creature breakdown and story section, and we will then give that to you as our final episode. Uh, movie and monster to be decided, and you'll see it in the podcast feed when that episode comes out. Uh, more information then. So, as we say here at the end of every episode, remember, the monsters aren't real, but the science is. Bye for now. Bye, guys. I've always wanted a pet. That's not a pet. But I already named it. Let me guess. Blue. Aww.